Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Imposter. It's I, your host, Amir Fogel, and I have to say today's episode is slamming. Me and Otis had a really good time recording it. You're going to learn a lot. It's a good compliment to the previous episode that we did with Ro Allen, who also told us about his experience on a marine expedition. Now we're going to get a different take on another marine expedition. I will just give one precursor, which is that I had to wake up fairly early in the morning to record this episode, because as you'll find out, Otis is currently in Sweden. So if I say some goofy things or things don't make sense at one point, I've tried to edit that part out, but uh, you, you'll know why it was it was fairly early in the morning. And other than that, I hope you enjoy. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature you are. Hey everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of The Imposter. The podcast dedicated to making science more fun, engaging, and accessible for you, the audience. Now it is I, your humble host, Amir. And today we are joined by someone who's been on the podcast before, actually. The one and only, very lovely, very brilliant, Otis Bruner. Otis, welcome back, sir. Hello, Amir. It's nice to be back. <laughs> How's it going, man? Yeah, yeah, really good. Really good. Yeah? Settling into Sweden nicely? Mm, very nicely. Yeah, summer in Sweden is incredible. Summer in Sweden, I love that. Be great wine. Sweet Swedish summer. Swedish summer. Mm. Delicious. All right. Now, Otis, it is great to have you back on. I almost want to admit that it was indeed I that actually deleted that first take of this episode. Uh, I did it on purpose just so I could have an excuse to see your beautiful face again. But I won't I won't actually tell you about that. So don't worry. Um, well, well, it's nice to hear that you're so honest with your listeners. Amir. Well, you know, we could have. We could have got away with it. I like to clear the air. That's all. It's out. It's out there now. <laughs> it though. is out there. I hope it doesn't make it too awkward. All right. So, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> before we get into to everything, I feel compelled to mention at least that Otis and I recorded a couple of episodes just before he left on the expedition, and it's imposter episodes eighteen and nineteen which I believe would complement today's episode quite nicely. But in the interest of time, the quick recap is basically Otis was aboard the James Cook embarking on the Deep Links Project, which is a collaboration between, correct me if I'm wrong, Otis, Plymouth University, University of Oxford, the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, or JNCC, and the British Geological Survey. 
That is 100% correct. All right. So now that we have a quick recap, Otis, can you tell the great folks at home what the main objective or objectives were for the Deep Links project? The main objective was looking into population connectivity in certain deep sea ecosystems. So we have a array of marine protected areas out of the deep sea within our jurisdiction, within the UK jurisdiction. And part of the evaluation of whether those MPAs are working or not is to see if they're connected, if they constitute a network of MPAs rather than just a series of individual MPAs. Now, MPAs are marine protected areas. If, if I'm correct, I, I've seen some research coming out that's uh, saying that the areas surrounding MPAs seem to do better overall in the long term. Um, is that because of population connectivity? Yeah, I, I guess so. It'd be populations migrating out of the MPAs, mobile species like fish, which are quite important for assessing MPAs because a lot of the time that's the reason for protecting an area to increase fish stock. So I think I think it's called the spillover effect, yeah. where the yeah, yeah. benefits of the marine protected area sort of radiate out. And that's, that's great to see because then that benefits the local fishermen and they can see immediately the benefit of protecting this area. Right. What, what's the maximum distance they could travel between different communities? Well, that's really interesting because for the deep sea, at the moment, we're basing it purely on theory and some lab experiments on the plankton planktonic duration, effectively how long the planktonic form of an organism. So an organism like sea cucumbers will spawn their planktonic larvae into the water column in order for them to settle elsewhere sort of like seed dispersal right and all we know about uh how far they can go is based on the currents in the area and an assumption of how long that plankton can survive so based on its food stores predation Mm -hmm. it's all theoretical at the moment so this is why we we did the population connectivity study we used genetics most of the genetics work supplied by oxford university to actually look at how far these populations are getting, if they're connected at certain distances apart, if they're connected at certain depths apart. So we can finally actually look in the field and decide how connected they are rather than just theorizing. Well, I mean, that's very fascinating. It sounds like it's very important. Something that comes to mind, I'm assuming that a big part of these, like you've mentioned, is you know currents and different oceanic processes that are occurring that help to encourage population Mm. connectivity so would any of those be affected by different adverse reactions to climate change in the ocean so ocean acidification or warming of the ocean i'm certain there are uh, going to be effects but as as i've explained we know very little about the subject at the moment so it's all it's all hypothesizing hopefully this study will create a baseline we can compare future studies. Well, actually, that's a great lead, and I was going to ask, you know, is deep sea research generally a small field? I guess uh, in terms of expeditions, not all that much because of the, the price of it. It's very expensive to hire a research vessel for that long to go out to the open ocean and then to send down expensive equipment such as remotely operated vehicles and right. automated underwater vehicles. It's all okay. It all adds up to a high price tag. So... What we do a lot of the time is more computational work. We can collect a lot of data in one run and then we'll try and do everything we possibly can with that data. So there's a lot of work to be done, but not a whole lot of 
sampling to be afforded. I get, I got that. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So we've talked about how the main objective for the expedition was to find out a bit more about population connectivity. Yeah. Did you accomplish your goal? <laughs> um, we have an excellent data set. We okay. have a lot of data. <laughs> We have thousands of samples, hours and hours of video data. So all we can say at this point is that we have potential for, for some great findings. But seeing as analysis takes so long and in itself needs grants, it's going to take a while until we know what we've got. But it looks good. So I was going to ask, what, what is the next step now that you've collected all this data? The next step for Oxford is to take genetic samples of all the subsamples we took, effectively every organism we brought up, we would both preserve in RNA later. What, what was that used for? RNA later is a hypersaline solution that effectively takes out RNA transcriptase, the molecule that is working on the gene. So, say if a gene codes for building a certain protein, the RNA will be working on building that protein. So, by preserving the RNA in the state that it was, we can see what genes were being utilized at that time oh interesting interesting and in ethanol they'll look at the genome of that organism so we have a lot of genetic data on a lot of samples i guess their step <laughs> that's really cool is to take the genetic information from those samples and catalog it over in plymouth Woo. <laughs> our data set was um yeah <laughs> our data set was the video data so our next step is to analyze the video data, catalog what species are found where, and then we've got a very interesting piece of diversity and uh, distribution data, which we can then work on. So I guess at the moment it's all data processing before we can actually do analyses. And after analyses, I'm assuming there'll be a few papers uh, being submitted for publication. I imagine there'll be quite a few that come from this data set. For example, a publication I'm working on now is based on six years of these sort of cruises. Oh, wow. I think going back to as early as early 2000s, so okay. these data sets can be useful for a long time. Interesting. All right, so for the people that might be listening that have not conducted any surveys, mm. I was going to ask you, can you tell us about some of the methods that you guys used on the expedition to collect all the samples? Certainly. So um, what we at Plymouth mostly work with towing a video camera along the seabed along a straight line for a certain distance so the transect is a line of a certain distance that we have sampled and by doing that we have a set space containing organisms and from that we can extrapolate what the rest of the space contains and mm. uh you you had correct me if i'm mistaken but you had the rov and the auv right yes the rov was our our primary piece of equipment and a lot of fun as well um <laughs> so so what is an rov for for people listening at home an rov is a remotely operated vehicle imagine a remote controlled car but it's actually a submarine and it's that about 10 dope. million it's about 10 million pounds worth of equipment wow. and it's fitted out with arms for picking up samples and loads of cameras and big floodlights to view the seabed so we would send that along on our video transects, recording a certain area of the seabed. And then we would go and hunt deep sea beasties, deep sea beasties. to bring back on board for the Oxford samples. So yeah, the ROV was the real, real crucial piece of equipment run by a team at the National Oceanography Council. It was great fun. Yeah, it was really yeah. amazing to see it in work as well. 
the situation would be there's a a small <laughs> effectively shipping container that's been customized to be full of computers and cameras and it's it's called the rov shack it's where the rov pilots sit and control the vehicle from so there would be a team of pilots flying the vehicle across the seabed and then behind them a team of scientists recording what we're finding and taking intricate detail on where and what we found and the situation down there and yeah it was just a great experience to be in that rov shack and seeing the scientists uh they weren't being backseat drivers no 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 turned left well actually no i guess we were i mean if we saw something particularly interesting we would we would ask the the pilots to have a look at it and they're more than happy to oblige go have a look at the stuff yeah they they weren't like i will i will pull this (laughs) over over there was there was one time where it got a bit out of hand we 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 came across a very large sponge like very very large and we wanted to get a good look at it and some good video footage of it. But the, we sort of got pulled away by the currents and it took us about half an hour to find it again. Oh, wow. So I want to shift gears a little bit right. and and ask you, what what was it like to live aboard this research vessel? Take us through mm-hmm. a day in the life of Otis aboard the James Cook. Okay, typical day in the life of Otis aboard the James Cook. Um, my shift was from... 4 p.m. till 4 a.m. and there was the, the the scientific crew were effectively split into two groups: the day shift and the night shift. I was the night shift, 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. and the day shift was, you know, 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. So I would get up, have some breakfast, and then at, actually at four there would be a um, a swap over where we meet up in the main lab and the day shift. Uh, and the night shift meet on that rare occasion and we talk <laughs> and we talk about that is forbidden <laughs> they get a debriefing and they give us a briefing of what they've done so far and what needs doing the rest of it and the uh, the tasks were the jobs were split into two main tasks there was well there's collecting samples and then there was effectively dissecting and sorting samples so the collecting samples was done through the rov shack like i mentioned before the rov pilots driving and the scientists right. physically looking out for samples on the camera screens and then um, after about maybe 12 to 18 hours of ROV driving, we would bring up the hull, bring it on board, take it into a very cold lab and get to cataloging the organisms we found as well as cutting small subsamples out of them to be used in genetics back at Oxford. So those were the two main tasks. But there was also a lot of administrative stuff to do, a lot of organising, a lot of writing right yeah it was it was always something to keep you busy it was it was and good what about uh were you allowed or had the energy for any downtime oh yeah yeah often after a long shift i mean even though it's uh four in the morning you still want to sort of unwind you why, why don't you go ahead and explain to people what type of expedition with air quotes you really went on okay i should i should have opened with this but um <laughs> i this was my first research expedition but I, I think I've got a bit of a skewed view of research expeditions now <laughs> because it was luxury. I mean, I was expecting 20 people in a hammock in a room, confined spaces, not much to do but work, smelly, unclean, you know, just tough conditions to work in. But the James Cook was incredible. I had my very own cabin. I only shared a bathroom with one other person. There were two cinema rooms. There were two, two cinema rooms. One of, them, one of them was nice and cosy with sofas and a film collection and a standard old TV. 
the other had a projector screen and there was table football awesome <laughs> darts jeez yeah. man that's so cool and we yeah and like i said we had a great film collection so yeah but um not only that we had two different gyms and a fully sized sauna that's actually ridiculous that is ridiculous yeah nothing no, um, they didn't skip out on you no no clearly not that's so, funny, you know, we, we on, on a previous episode, we were talking to Ro, mm. who also went on his expedition recently, and it was quite the different experience. <laughs> yeah. <between the> I <laughs> was always curious about doing uh, expeditions like that. I'd love to do well, that. Well, I'd say to you and any listeners, if you get a chance, it's just a great experience. I mean, even even though it looks amazing on your CV, it's just, it's just a good fun, just good wholesome fun. <laughs> well, you know, my, uh, my oceanography teacher from undergrad... Mm. He said that as soon as he got his undergraduate degree, he signed up, I think, for NOAA, which is the mm. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and signed up for this expedition right off the bat as soon as he graduated, spent three months at sea. He wow. said it was the most, the sharpest learning curve, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, you really got you really got to pick up the pace and keep up with everyone and learn as much as you can because you can't really get away with slacking off in such a small space when everyone's so dependent on each other. You know, I have to say something that uh, was really nice to see throughout the expedition was the uh, public engagement that the Deep Links project really, really stressed and, and I thought it was brilliant that they were so involved with trying to get people into the expedition itself. For, for those that didn't follow, you know, they would continuously post on Twitter and Facebook different pictures and videos and blog articles. Otis, you wrote a few, uh, but other people... I wrote a blog, the, yeah. Uh, the, the ship wrote it. Yeah, I wrote a blog, a bit, a bit of a dry blog no, about like uh, mapping and modelling, because that's what, that's what I do and that's what I'm interested in. So it's, I, think, I think it was quite accessible. I mean, anyone could read it and understand it. It was just an overview of what I was doing. But other colleagues wrote about, for example, Chloe Game, a colleague of mine, she wrote about what it's like to be on the James Cook and what it's like to live on the James Cook. And that was, that's a nice article. It's funny. And uh, yeah, if you want to get an idea of what it's like to be on the boat. Well, I was just going to say, I really, I think that's so important. And, you know, it's the little things like that, that I think go a long way for people that would never even fathom what a scientific research expedition entails. So <laughs> it's really great to be, really... it's really great to be able to involve the public. I mean, knowledge of the deep sea is, is not a thing high on, most people's list but then every now and then we'll come across something like a giant coral just off the coast of scotland or the most adorable octopus i've ever seen it personally and (laughs) yeah it gets people engaged you've seen it and chimeras these weird shark-like creatures people don't know they're there but when they find out they're there i i think there is a lot of public interest in it oh yeah definitely there's not a lot of public exposure but i think if people saw it and seen the pictures or the videos or heard about it they would be interested i think so I was just gonna I was gonna ask what what is some of the cool stuff that you guys saw while you're down there? Wow, for me, it was the coral reefs. Really, big expanses of old coral, dead coral, but built upon by living coral and large soft corals. Just so amazing to see it in English waters in such such a cold area. Was it black um, coral? You don't. Is that that's a that's yeah, a some of it, coral, some, right? Yeah, some of it was black coral. Yeah, they're often the most beautiful right. ones. They call black coral because their stalks are yeah. black, but but they come in all shapes and sizes, and colours. And also there were giant sponges. Those were very interesting. One of them was at least as tall as me, and 
That is just unbelievable. And maybe it's wide, so a massive like two meter by two meter sponge just sitting there, bright white on the seabed. It was incredible. That's so cool. We came across one coral mound on the edge of, uh, effectively, the edge, edge of an old volcano, the Anton Dorn. Oh, wow. So this is, Anton Dorn is the largest volcano in the UK. It's just on the water. It was a volcano like Hawaii's a volcano. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, then it's receded and sunk, as they do, and now it's a, what's called a sea mountain. Oh, yeah. Area of high biodiversity. Exactly, yeah. And the, the cliffs around it contain so much coral reefs, and we found, we think we came across, like, uh, effectively a shark nest maybe is a better word for it Very but cool. there nursing, were dozens of deep sea sharks nursery, nursery, yeah nursery, nursery grounds yeah. there were dozens of these big black sharks Interesting. just swimming around so that was really nice yeah that sounds very nice well uh for for those listening i will post links to all of the pictures and social media accounts so that you can check out the blogs too and get some more of those pictures and videos yeah and they're really you you're gonna want to check them out because a you're looking at stuff that you would never, ever be able to see otherwise. I mean, this is such mm. a rare opportunity. But but B, they're just so cool. I mean, you'd want to see it regardless. Oh, yeah. I'd really recommend, especially to any of your UK listeners, to have a look at what's in the waters around you. You go to, a lot of people don't think that the UK waters hold that much interesting stuff. They think it's just seaweed and murk, but... You don't have to go to Australia to see coral reefs. I mean, they're just there. True that. This is something that we've talked about before, but I think it's important to continue uh, to mention it because it's important. Why should people care about deep sea research? Well, for a start, it's the largest ecosystem biozone in the world. I mean, the deep ocean covers a majority of the Earth's surface. I was going to come out with a percentage, but I'll probably get it wrong. Um, <laughs> and just economically and how it affects your life personally, that's where... That's where your fish come from a lot of the time. I mean, they may not live in the deep sea, but they rely on the habitats of the deep sea. They may have spawning grounds in the deep sea. Uh, if you like your fish, uh, it needs protecting. I think mostly it needs protecting because it's so overlooked. It's not a very popular area for conservation. The, the term out of sight, out of mind comes to mind. Um. Well, you know, it's also interesting that it's only been recently, relatively recently, that we've had the technology to actually fish at those depths too. So, you know, we, we wouldn't know about, you know, this horrible destructive bottom trawling in the deep sea mm. until the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, completely. I think, um, I think what makes me really passionate about protecting the deep sea is that we have a real chance to protect it in a almost pristine state. I mean, Rainforests and coral reefs. We shouldn't. Not, I'm not saying we should give up on protection. <laughs> yeah. What, them, what but... are you saying about the priorities of conservation? Notice. <laughs> no. 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 Just that the deep sea. It's it's in an okay state right now. I mean, yeah, we have massive issues from overly fished areas. Say a trawler will drag their beams and their nets across the seabed. They'll catch fish, but they'll also uproot coral reefs, which I mean can take hundreds of thousands of years to grow and minutes to destroy, and also. There's the expansion of deep sea mining. I mean, it's it's not really happening yet, but the companies are gearing up. The the equipment's being made. It'll only be a few years before we see massive scale mining of the deep sea. So, if we really want to conserve it, it's not good enough to wait until the damage is done and then try and backtrack. It's a lot more proficient to protect areas in advance of their destruction, yeah. rather than after their destruction, as we've had to do. With so many areas on land and the and the rest of the ocean, we've had to backtrack. You know, I think you've just hit on a really big point, 
that goes beyond just uh, you know deep sea conservation but we have kind of this history of getting rid of certain habitats before we really understand their ecological niche or their role and you know what comes to mind is you know mangroves and mangrove systems that they're great mm. coastal defense you know i mean they're yeah. they're so strong in their entanglement uh, and secure that they really do break a lot of the wave force uh, from going inland more and yeah you know once all of it gets deforested if we're having tsunamis and hurricanes become more regular actually i think they said hurricanes aren't going to become more regular that's the newest prediction Ah, I forgot why. <laughs> I think I read that somewhere. That's interesting. Uh, anyway, yeah. but you know, freak, freak weather. This natural coastal defense yeah. is now gone, and it could have really come in handy later on. There are ideas, and there's evidence that the deep sea plays an important role globally, partly because of its size. I mean, with something that big, any small effect will be amplified massively. But the sequestration of CO two. I was gonna. I was about to yeah, mention that. So yeah, so CO two is released into and the as atmosphere. Well. Yeah, sequestration of all gases, really. I mean, the the, the carbon cycle uh, includes the uptake of CO2 into the ocean by plankton, and then this CO2 will eventually percolate down to the seabed as the remains of these organisms. I think only 10% um, reaches the seabed at a time, the rest is recycled. But over over right. the, the time scale of the carbon cycle, this, this does sequester all the CO2 into the, into the sediment. And once it's in the sediment, it's 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 locked away until it's released by a volcano or something like that. But it's locked away, and the organisms on the seabed, such as ophiroids and brittle stars that turbate and burrow, they really enhance this burying of CO2. And on such and on a scale of the entire deep sea, I mean, who knows what will happen if we remove some of the species or ecosystems? It, I I imagine that sequestration would be inhibited which means that not only are we releasing more co2 but we're reducing the ability of the earth to take it away at the same time right so again we don't we don't know a whole lot about the deep sea relative to other ecosystems if we do learn anything from history it's that it'll be almost too late before yeah. we realize that yeah too. i mean <laughs> in the history of ecological science it's very rare that someone looks into an ecosystem and they're like, oh, wait a sec, actually it's not important compared to what we thought. Yeah. You know what, actually it doesn't do anything. This this diversity of life and complicated interactions, you know what, it actually has no effect on anything whatsoever. <laughs> Screw it, man. Now, I have to ask, did you guys see any um, hydrothermal vents? No, we weren't looking for hydrothermal vents. Myself and the representative from the GNCC both believe there's signs of cold seeps in the area, which are also where gases are vented from the seabed but not in plumes of black smoke right. like at hydrothermal vents but they're called cold seeps because the the methane and um and other gases sort of seep out of the seabed huh. they also support interesting organisms that are only found there like at hydrothermal vents all right listen otis we are running out of time so this is very interesting i look forward to hearing more about what is coming out what you guys found from this expedition it sounds like it's going to be really really exciting stuff well uh, keep your eyes on the deep links twitter account and website and we have a meeting in september everyone's everyone's getting together again and discussing what the data means 
and how to move forward from it. So soon enough, we'll have more information. Now, Otis, the last thing I do with my guests, and you might remember this from the last time, but I like to ask if, <laughs> you know, now that you have a platform, you're on this podcast, you can say anything you want. Is there anything you'd like to tell the audience? You don't have to, but if you'd like to. No, I, no, I really, I really like this part, Amir. I think it's a really good idea. I guess last time I spoke about the benefits of volunteering, mm-hmm. how well it's worked out for me and how necessary it is often in a field like marine biology where there's not a lot of paid work yeah, in it. 100%. So you sort of have to get your foot in the door and you need to get experience where you can. So I guess this sort of leads on from that in flexibility because because of how difficult it is to find work in this field you have to be willing to travel far and wide for example i'm in sweden now one of the reasons was setting up a collaborative research project based up in the north of sweden on modeling phytoplankton dynamics but actually uh, flexibility has become more even more important in that um my partner is moving to japan to carry out research so i i've now decided to move to japan also traveler right here go on hopefully work at the research institute there so i would definitely definitely recommend flexibility in your work and be open to new things and new fields new places because in the end if you don't know exactly what you want to do in your career that's the best way to find it as well so i guess that's my message all right beautiful message thank you very much otis and thank you everyone for tuning in and listening to this week's episode we will see you next weekend don't forget to like and share the imposter on facebook soundcloud twitter at another fogel the wordpress blog can be found on all of those sites and you can also subscribe to the imposter podcast on itunes keyword the imposter podcast all right everybody thanks for listening otis thanks again for coming on it was a pleasure as always we will see you next week peace